You're listening to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. I'm Garrett Ashley Mullet, and I want to talk about everything. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared Yahweh, but the creditor has come to take my two children to be his slaves. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, Bring me another vessel. And he said to her, There is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, Go, sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. One day, Elisha went to Shunem where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. One day he came there, And he turned into the chamber and rested there, and he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call this Shunammite. When he had called her, she stood before him, and he said to him, Say now to her, See, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. And he said, What then is to be done for her? Gehazi answered, Well, she has no son, and her husband is old, he said. Call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway, and he said, At this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, No, my lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived, and she bore a son about that time the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. When the child had grown, he went out one day, to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, Oh, my head, my head! The father said to his servant, Carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him up and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap till noon, and then he died. And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, Send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys, that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, Why will you go to him today? It is neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, All is well. Then she saddled the donkey, and she said to her servant, Urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, Look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, Is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And she answered, All is well. 
And when she came to the mountain to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet. And Gehazi came to push her away. But the man of God said, Leave her alone, for she is in bitter distress, and Yahweh has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, Tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply. And lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, As Yahweh lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore he returned to meet him and told him, The child has not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to Yahweh. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her. And when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. And Elisha came again to Gilgal, when there was a famine in the land. And as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds and came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some for the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, O man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. He said, Then bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, Pour some out for the men, that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. A man came from Baal Shalashah, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, twenty loaves of barley, and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, Give to the men, that they may eat. But his servants said, How can I set this before a hundred men? So he repeated, Give to the men, that they may eat, for thus says Yahweh, They shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them. And they ate and had some left, according to the word of Yahweh. this feeling inside my bones it goes electric wavy when i turn it on all through my city all through my home we're flying up no ceiling when we in our zone i got Welcome back to the Garrett Ashley Mullet Show. This is Garrett Ashley Mullet coming to you from Greeley, Colorado. Where else? For episode 800 of this podcast. It's fun that we have 800 episodes under the belt. This is the 800th. And if you've been listening to this show for a while, you know what we do every 100 episodes. We do a recap. We do a review of the last 100 episodes. So stay tuned for that. Today is... January 19th, 2024. I just read for you 2 Kings chapter 4. And let's talk about 2 Kings chapter 4 before we get into reviewing 
the last hundred episodes because, admittedly, spoiler alert, Second Kings chapter four is more important than the last hundred episodes that we've recorded. Why do I say that? Because it's in the Bible. <laughs> it's in the Bible, and the Bible is God's inspired word. I believe that. I hope you believe that too. And so let's not skip over that part because I want to talk about what I've been talking about the last hundred episodes. Elisha and the widow's oil is a very short story. It's a short little anecdote, but it's a vignette. It's a little character tale, a morality play of sorts. And so is Elisha and the Shunammite woman. And so is Elisha raising the Shunammite's son. So is Elisha purifying the deadly stew. There was death in the pot. As a matter of fact, all throughout this chapter, you see life and death. And it's interesting that the way God chooses to reveal himself is through people like Elisha. Elisha in this case, but people like Elisha. And God takes an interest in expressing his own character through the reflection of humanity. In the case of the first anecdote, let's just start from the top. This is a widow. She is the wife of one of the sons of the prophets, and she asks Elisha for help. Why does she need help? Well, because her husband is dead. She is a widow. And her husband, she says, Elisha knows, feared Yahweh. But there are debts. And the creditor has come not to collect material goods, because apparently they didn't have much that was worth what it would cost to repay the debts. The debts that they had that her husband left are, I suppose, debts that were incurred to provide for his wife and his children, his two children, their two children. He's passed away, and now it's just her and these two children. And the creditor has come to collect on the debts in the form of taking away her two children. Now, if you can imagine, that would be a very upsetting circumstance to be in. That would be very, very stressful and very frightening and heartbreaking. And where does the widow go? She goes to Elisha. She asks Elisha for help. Now, there are all kinds of things that Elisha could respond with. He could lecture her about how you should only buy what you can afford and how you could do a lot better. You could have done a lot better if you would have saved up and spent cash instead of taking on debt. Your husband, he should have known better. And now you just bear the consequences. But it is what it is. I'm sorry. It's sad. But let this be a lesson to everybody else. Don't take on debt. That could have been the response, and that's not Elisha's response. Elisha asks, what shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And maybe what have you in the house is actually very much along the lines of what a creditor would ask. What do you have that's worth something? And the woman says, your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. So they are really poor. If that's all they've got, that's not going to be enough. A jar of oil is not worth what two slaves are. But 
Elisha says, go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels, and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. Wouldn't you know it, the oil just keeps on pouring out of the one jar of oil that the woman had. And she's got her sons or she's got her children. It says her son, so she has one son at least. So maybe it's a older son she's having primarily help her. But then it later says your sons. So it's two sons. So maybe one's older, one's younger. She has her son bring her another vessel and then another vessel. And when there aren't any more vessels to pour into, the oil stops flowing. And this is miraculous. This isn't normal. This doesn't typically happen. Yes, the authors of the text in the Old Testament and in the New Testament knew that these sorts of things don't typically happen, but then that's just it. With God, all things are possible. And if God has empowered Elisha to tell the widow, do this thing, clearly God has also instructed Elisha that this is the thing to do. This is in keeping with the character of God that a widow would be provided for, that a widow and her orphan children would be provided for. God is a father to the fatherless, and we see that here. God cares about this widow and her sons, and he doesn't just care about them in an emotional sense, like he feels something for the widow and her sons. God provides. But the conduit is Elisha and the instructions of Elisha And in this case, they have everything that they need to pay back their debts and then some. They have something to live on besides what it's going to take to pay back the collector. This is a happy, happy story. God cares about economics. He cares about home economics. That is to say, he cares about how you find yourself able to eat and drink and be housed and be clothed. He cares about that. But then he doesn't just care about the poor widow who's about to have her children taken from her. Next, we hear about a Shunammite woman. And it seems as though there's some kind of a language barrier because Gehazi is the go-between, like Gehazi is the interpreter. But in any event, here's a wealthy woman. The previous woman was a poor widow. This woman is wealthy. And when Elisha is passing by, she urges Elisha to come on in and have something to eat. And then it's not just a one-off. It's every time he passes by that way, he turns in to have a meal. That's not quite sufficient in her mind. And so she talks to her husband and says, let's set up a guest room just for the man of God. And so they do. They make a small room on the roof with walls and they put a bed in there and a table and a chair and a lamp so that he has a place to stay when he's in the area. And that is to say that this man and his wife are hospitable. They're gracious hosts. And one day he turns in to rest, Elisha does, and Elisha says, call the Shunammite, that is the woman. She comes And Elisha says, see, you have taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? 
Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answers, I dwell among my own people, which seems to be basically, I'm content. If I can translate, I'm content. Nope, that's not necessary. I'm good. But Elisha is insistent. What then is to be done for her? Gehazi, the servant of Elisha, has an idea. Gehazi tells Elisha, well, she has no son, and her husband is old, and maybe that's an idea that has occurred to Gehazi on his own, just observing, or maybe that's something the Shunammite asked for in any event. Elisha has her brought back, sent for again, so it seems as though she left after the initial conversation, and now she's come back again. And Elisha says, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she says, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. Do not lie to me. Don't joke about that kind of a thing. That's not funny. But so it was. She conceives, bears a son about that time, the following spring, as Elisha said to her. And again, this is from God. This is God using Elisha to demonstrate that he doesn't just care about the poor woman who has children but no husband, and she's about to lose her children. God also cares about wealthy women who have a husband but no children. Now the child grows up, several years must pass, and he's out one day going out to his father among the reapers. So think fields, think harvest time. The child who is a boy, goes out, and he says, oh, my head, my head. So something is wrong. He's got heat stroke, or he's having an aneurysm, or something. Something is happening, something to do with his head. Maybe it's a tumor, but he dies. And the woman, at this juncture, could have said, the Lord gives and the Lord takes away. She could have been content, after a fashion, to mourn, and to be thankful that she had had a child for a brief span. She's not content to let her child go, her son go. And so she goes to speak with Elisha. And on the way, she's in a hurry. She doesn't want to slow down. She wants to go and get to Elisha as fast as possible. But then all of this is to say that it works in the opposite direction as well, that God is pleased to use Elisha to express his own character to these people. And God is content, it would seem, for people to recognize that they go to Elisha to ask something of God, or that Elisha has power from God, and therefore, if they have a special request that nobody but God would be able to handle, they go to the man of God. And so she does. And she goes, they set out for Mount Carmel, remember where Elijah and the prophets of Baal had the showdown? that Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, look, there's the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say, is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? And that is to say, it seems to Elisha, it must be something is wrong with the woman, her husband, or her child. Something she's asking for help with. Now, interestingly, Gehazi goes and asks, and the woman's answer is all is well. Like she doesn't want to tell Gehazi, like maybe she doesn't trust Gehazi or something. She doesn't want this being a go-between. She doesn't want to talk with 
the receptionist. She wants to speak with the executive, the one who actually executes on the favor that's being asked or that's about to be asked. She says all is well, but then when she comes to the mountain, to the man of God, she catches hold of his feet, but then that is to say that she falls down at his feet to take hold of them. Gehazi tries to push her away. Apparently, he thinks he's serving Elisha well to do that. But the man of God says, leave her alone. She is in bitter distress, and Yahweh has hidden it from me and has not told me. And maybe that's also part of the reason why Gehazi was pushing her away, because she had told him that everything is fine, and he felt slighted by that. And maybe that's also what Elisha is addressing. I don't know either, okay? Just chill, Gehazi. Man, leave her alone. The woman says, did I ask my Lord for a son? And the answer would seem to be no. But then she asks another question. Did I not say, do not deceive me? So then that is to say, she's feeling like it was always too good to be true that she had this son, even though her husband was old and apparently so old that it wasn't expected that she could get pregnant by him. And yet she did. And yet not for the first time and not for the last time does God open the womb and allow conception to happen for couples who don't seem to be able to have a child otherwise. Again, to show that nothing is impossible for God. Elisha says to Gehazi, tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. Tie up your garment is to say, gird up your loins, I think. Make haste. Tighten your shoelaces and hustle. Take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him. And if anyone greets you, do not reply. Go directly to this woman's house. Do not delay. Don't let anybody else delay you. Lay my staff on the face of the child. The mother of the child says, As Yahweh lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. And then that is to say that... She's not content with Gehazi being somebody deputized by Elisha. She doesn't want to take any chances at all. She's not going anywhere. If Elisha thought that it could be handled just like that, she's insistent. And so he might as well just go with her. And it's a good thing, too, because Gehazi goes on ahead. He's already taken off. He's hustling. He lays the staff on the face of the child, but there's no reaction. It doesn't do anything. He returns to Elisha and tells him the child is not awakened. Elisha gets there and sees that the child is dead. Not just sleeping, but dead. He goes in, shuts the door behind him. And that's interesting too, because there's a bit of a parallel. There's a pattern. Shutting the door behind them, in the case of the widow of the son of the prophets and her two children, shutting the door behind him in the case of Elisha and this child of the Shunammite. Elisha then does a strange thing. He lays on this child. And it's almost like there's something to that. That's a escalation of having laid the staff on the child. As in, if there's anything holy about Elisha over and above, his staff being associated with him, Gehazi being associated with him, his lying on the child is really to put all the chips into the middle of the table. Please, Lord, bring this child back to life, essentially, is the plea. 
And so it is. It happens that initially the child becomes warm. Elisha gets up and walks back and forth in the house. And then he lies down on the child again. And the child sneezes seven times. What's the significance of seven sneezes? I don't know. I really don't. It is interesting that it's seven. He completely sneezed because seven is the number of completion. I don't know. But then the child opens his eyes. The Shunammite is called in, and Elisha says, pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. Again, this is to demonstrate something of the character of Elisha and to demonstrate something of the character of God by way of telling us how God worked through Elisha. So we've come full circle. The woman who was poor and a widow, it matters to God. It matters to Elisha. It definitely matters to the woman herself that that woman would retain her children, her sons, especially being a widow. But it also matters to God and it matters to Elisha that this wealthy woman would retain her son, especially with her husband being old. It's important that she would have a son to take care of her in her old age, wealthy or not, a wealthy widow without a son to speak for her, represent her, protect her, protect her interests would be very, very vulnerable. But it matters to God that her son would be restored to her. And so her son is restored to her, even from death. We have debt and we have death getting between a poor woman and a rich woman and her child or children. We have either poor or rich mothers who don't want to lose their sons. And God cares about that. It matters to God. Nothing is too hard for God. And we see that he has compassion on women here, on women who would otherwise be alone in their old age and heartbroken for the rest of their days. Last, we've got Elisha coming again to Gilgal, and there's famine in the land. You have the sons of the prophets once again in the picture. They show up again and again. It's the sons of the prophets. Very curious. They're sitting before Elisha. Elisha says to his servant, set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds and came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. Well, apparently they weren't good to eat and you shouldn't have collected them without knowing what they were, but he does. He he does and he did. He was just grabbing wild gourds that looked like they might be edible And it turns out you don't eat those gourds. They're not good to eat. Something's wrong with these gourds. They poured out some for the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, Oh man of God, there is death in the pot. And they could not eat it. Elisha says, Bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, Pour some out for the men that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. Why is this story in here? Well, I think this story is in here in part because the sons of the prophets is pretty ambiguous. And maybe, just maybe, some of what they reach for, being loosely familiar with prophecy by way of their fathers, some of what they reach for is not good. And maybe this is some anecdote that's a variation on testing the spirits to see whether they are from God or whether they're a lying spirit, a deceiving spirit. 
a spirit that's going to poison your mind and ultimately kill you. What purifies might not be adding something that's not in there, but it might be the rest of the truth, the rest of the story. Having not included a ingredient, there's a toxin, but if you did include this ingredient, then that toxin would be neutralized and you won't have a bad reaction. You won't get sick and die. Maybe it's like that, and this is an illustration of the prophets in Ahab's day, for instance, who would only tell the king what he wanted to hear, but then that leads to the death of the king, in part because God himself has sent a lying spirit into the mouths of the prophets of Ahab to mislead him, to put him on the path to destruction, because that's what he deserves for causing Israel to sin, sinning himself, leading his household in sin, but leading Israel in sin. Who knows how to make this fit for human consumption again? Not deadly. God knows. The man of God knows. Lastly, a man from Baal Shalisha, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley, fresh ears of grain in a sack. Elisha says, give to the men that they may eat. Which men? Who are the men? Well, presumably the sons of the prophets still. His servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? Elisha's response is hilarious. He just repeats himself with, oh, by the way, an extra ingredient. (laughs) Give them to the men that they may eat, for thus says Yahweh, they shall eat and have some left. Ah, so he said it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of Yahweh. And this just goes to show that what Jesus does in the New Testament with telling his disciples to gather the loaves and fish, when there are thousands who've come out to hear Jesus teach and preach and to be healed by him and to have demons cast out, to be made whole in mind and in body, when they're hungry and Jesus has compassion for them and has what food there is collected and distributed, that's very much in keeping with how God has acted elsewhere at other times. But then that is to say, this is remarkably consistent of God to express himself in this way, in these ways, in this chapter. God is sovereign over the circumstances surrounding debt and a widow possibly losing her children. God is sovereign over the circumstances in which a couple may not be able to conceive, but they really want to, or the woman really at least wants to. God is sovereign over the circumstances in which a young child might suddenly become ill and die. God is sovereign over the circumstances when the food is not good to eat or there's not enough food to eat. God is sovereign over all these things. And so also thinking forward to the Gospels when Jesus says, seek ye first the kingdom of heaven and his righteousness and all these things will be added unto you. When he tells his disciples to not worry about what you're going to eat or what you're going to wear because your father in heaven knows that you need food and he knows that you need clothing. You should know God is the one who's able to provide those things as you need them and you should not fear and you should not worry and you shouldn't be anxious. You should trust in God. Take your requests to God. Don't be anxious for anything. But that is all for this episode of Second Kings 
chapter 4 in our next episode. Of course, we'll talk about 2 Kings chapter 5. But this is, as I said, at the top, episode 800. And as I like to do every 100 episodes, I'm going to review the highlights and the lowlights of the last 100 episodes. The unexamined life is not worth living, as someone once said. And that is to say, if you're not reflecting on what it is that you're doing, what are you doing? (laughs) The nine most popular episodes will be considered this time around, and the eight least popular, and by that I mean the eight least interesting episodes, if how many listens there were is any indication. In previous recaps, I've gone with 10 and 10, the 10 most popular the 10 least popular episodes this time around. We're going to change it up because there were too many ties for the 10th or for the 9th and 10th in the case of most popular and least popular respectively. And so we're just going to make a review of the nine most popular episodes and the eight least popular episodes from episode 700 to 800 Oh, by the way, the end of August is when I recorded and published episode 700, which was a recap of the previous 100 episodes. So from August to the present, the nine most popular episodes have been as follows in order of most listened to to less listened to. First up, Israel and Hamas and how we can know who the terrorists are. I published that one. October 7th, so the day of the big terror attack in Israel. Next was O Absalom. Kevin DeYoung is critiquing Doug Wilson and the Moscow mood. There I read and commented on Kevin DeYoung's piece, trying to break down what it is that people find so appealing about Doug Wilson and how perhaps the people who are drawn to Doug Wilson and Doug Wilson himself, the people who are around Doug Wilson, could do better. (laughs) They could uh, be more helpful and godlier and a better example. Next up, I reviewed The Pendragon Cycle by Stephen R. Lawhead on December 10th. I really enjoyed all five books in the series, by the way. If you haven't listened to that episode yet, but you have some interest in fantasy novels, fantasy fiction, Arthurian legend, go check that one out. After that, How I'm Voting in Greeley, Colorado, Part 1, on October 29th. I recorded that one as Part 1 of 2, going through the ballot and explaining why, yay or nay, why this candidate or that candidate in our local elections. Some found that interesting. Hopefully, everybody found it helpful. Probably not everybody did, and that's fine. But it was a good exercise. It was the most I've ever paid attention to local elections, and I think I should pay more attention. I think we should pay more attention to who's running locally, what's being considered as far as initiatives in your municipality, in your county, in your state, your off years, so to speak, that are not about voting for the president. Yeah, those years also matter, and you should care about them. You should pay attention to them. And so we're going to try and do better in that regard, be more helpful, be a better example. That'll be the Greeley mood, Lord willing. The Old Man in the Sea by Ernest Hemingway, Men and Marriage by George Gilder. That was the next most popular episode from September 30th. 
That was a two-for-one set of book reviews. And actually, I think those two books went well together, listening to them back-to-back, reviewing them in the same episode. Another book review after that was reviewing War on Sacred Grounds by Ron E. Hasner. That's the only episode in the most popular, most listened to that has been here in this year since January 1st. But Ron E. Hasner's book about holy sites and contested places that have significance to religious people, but there's fighting, there's conflict, there's blood that is shed to try and reclaim or push others out or hold on to those sites like, say, for instance, the Temple Mount in Jerusalem. Ron E. Hasner's take on all of that. I don't like. I didn't like his book. I don't like his book. I explain at length why that is in that episode, January 6th. Next up, how often men think about the Roman Empire. In that episode on September 15th, I picked up on this trend. Everybody's talking about how surprising it is. The women are talking about how surprising it is. Let me clarify that all of the men in their lives think on a regular basis about the Roman Empire because apparently women don't think about the Roman Empire all that much. But certainly men in the West do at least a couple of times a week. Most men say, if not several times a month, I talk in that episode about why I think that is, speaking personally, how that gets to a fundamental difference between men and women, a distinction that's good, it's okay for men and women to be different and to have different mindsets and different roles. And no, I don't think this is a social construct. I think this is by God's design. And rather than fighting it or denying it or getting all offended about it, we should just embrace it and glory in it and try to express it in the most God-honoring way possible. But I don't think that our getting offended about it, being discontented about it, I don't think that honors God at all. Even if there's more to it than just embracing it, I don't believe that rejecting it is even remotely close to appropriate or what God calls us to. Next up, December 8th, just like I covered Kevin DeYoung's criticism of Doug Wilson and the Moscow mood, I covered Doug Wilson's rejoinder, as he called it, to Kevin DeYoung about gnats and camels. December 8th was that episode. And then the ninth most popular was Life After Television, Just Thinking About the State and the Unsettling of America. Three books reviewed in one episode. And again, I think those three went fairly well together, not quite as well as George Gilder's and Ernest Hemingway's titles that I reviewed together, but still pretty well. Life After Television, another George Gilder book, Just Thinking About the State, being very much a product of the John MacArthur ecosystem in American evangelicalism, an attempt at creating something of a textbook or a study guide for small groups and Bible studies to think rightly about political theology, to develop better political theology together. And then lastly, The Unsettling of America by Wendell Berry, talking about culture and agriculture. And these three actually go together very nicely if you think about it, because Life After Television is something of a follow-on, or at least is in the tradition of Neil Postman's Amusing Ourselves to Death. And it's projections about how the internet age, how the digital age is going to have so many possibilities for getting knowledge, 
and communicating with one another freely and being more active in our media consumption, being content creators and not just passive recipients of other people's programming, that's going to be really good, George Gilder posits in Life After Television. But then it's almost a working in reverse of the dynamics Wendell Berry is bemoaning in The Unsettling of America, but with regards to information instead of food production. In between, you've got just thinking about the state and why does that go together with the other two? Because at every turn, whether we're talking about media, whether we're talking about food production, you have people who want to regulate and they want to either throttle down or they want to amp up certain participants in the market, the marketplace of ideas, but also in the production of food and everything else. You have people who want to regulate along certain ideological or philosophical lines, and we should think rightly about their proposals. If we have God's word to give us the mind of Christ, are we having the mind of Christ about how we relate to those who set policy and create regulations and interpret the regulations and apply the rules that they themselves establish? Are we thinking rightly about those who tax or who endow certain individuals and entities with the proceeds of tax revenue? Are we thinking rightly about that? Are we thinking at all that the mind of Christ pertains to all of the above? If you want to check out that episode, I published it December 14th of last year. And again, it's the ninth most popular episode of the last 100. On average, the length of my nine most popular episodes was one hour and 50 minutes, five zero, almost two hours, pretty lengthy. On average, the published date was November 12th of last year, but then getting into our eight least popular episodes, not counting those that are subscriber only in this month, because I think that skews the results too much. The whole list just looks like what I've published this month. If we do that, the eight least popular episodes, nevertheless, I think, I'm pretty sure if I go back and I look at it, and I probably should, I think they were every third. I think they were subscriber only in the month that they were published, even though they're not anymore. But on average, the published date was November 27th. And on average, the length of those episodes was one hour and 53 minutes. Just three minutes more, but maybe that's enough more to pinch some people's appetite. In order of least listened to to most listened to, they're actually all pretty well tied, but it made it easy that there were not more than 10 that were pretty well tied. Tied for least popular, (laughs) the following six. What we lose when God made man in his image, but God is dead and we killed him. That was a little abstract, December 21st. Also, it was two and a half hours long, just about. But also, it was right before Christmas. It was the week of Christmas. So, of all times, to publish such a thing, that maybe was not the ideal. After that, how sound political theology tempers our faith in institutions. That was December 11th, an hour and a half long, much shorter, but a little abstract, perhaps, for some people. Also, I think it was a subscriber only in the month of December, and that probably dampened 
a little bit of the response when it was first published. And then in hindsight, when it's not coming up in a notification for people, because I'm just making it available at the beginning of the new month, they see it, but they scroll on by because they're looking at the latest content that's more obviously what it is and concrete and specific. Next up was whether Fergus Moore MacArthur was father-in-law to King Arthur, December 6th. If you enjoy the Arthurian stuff, and if you enjoy at all a study of ancient or medieval British figures, that episode would be for you. But if you don't, well then, maybe that's why you didn't listen to it. (laughs) I don't know. After that, reviewing Why Liberalism Failed by Patrick J. Deneen. There wasn't a lot of interest in that one. Also, it was two hours and 11 minutes long, but that was November 11th. November 7th, I published How the Mighty Have Fallen. If you're familiar with the death of King Saul, that's what that episode has to do with. And also David's reaction to the death of King Saul and his sons. And then lastly, among the six that are tied for least popular of the last 100, Mike Johnson's going to pop some tags. It was all about how the media was trying to run with a narrative that Mike Johnson is a poor boy. He's just a poor boy from a poor family. I played off of Macklemore's song, Thrift Shop, to make the joke that, okay, so what if Mike Johnson pops some tags? What if he does shop at thrift stores? Does that disqualify him? Some were saying, if that's true, that he didn't make any more money than we see. And if he still has a mortgage, he still owes money on a house, that's proof that he's not good at managing money. And I basically say to that, maybe it's proof that he's not corrupt. When I look at how rich a lot of members of Congress have gotten, especially with they themselves and their families, trading on insider information about what's going to be regulated next, who's going to get looked into, called out, how that's going to affect their stock prices. It's amazing how often members of Congress beat the stock market. It's just uncanny and not a coincidence at all. If Mike Johnson's not been playing that game and he's just been content with the salary that he gets from being a member of Congress and he still owes money on his mortgage, maybe that's not a proof that he's incompetent. Maybe that's a proof that everybody else is corrupt, that that surprises you so much. Maybe we need more people who are like that, actually, not fewer people. But then after those six, there are two other episodes that were less popular. One December 17th, one November 23rd. You know, again, right through the holidays, right on Thanksgiving week, right on or right before Christmas week. Game Theory, Twilight Imperium, and the Pursuit of Wealth and Wisdom. One hour, 46 minutes. For some families, getting together for Thanksgiving is a bit more complicated. One hour and 51 minutes. Oh, by the way, in that last one, the week of Thanksgiving, I was talking about sons of David killing their brothers and how that would make getting together for Thanksgiving a little awkward. Maybe you don't enthusiastically break bread together when one of your brothers has murdered another one of your brothers at a meal, of all things, after he got a bit drunk. Revenge for your brother having raped your sister. Kind of messed up, but it's in the biblical text. So how about that? 
it's not always as simple as if you really want to be a good, godly person, you just forget about all the sin and folly in your extended family. Your family of origin may be really messed up, and maybe, just maybe, you're not obligated always to get together with them for the holidays. I know it's a crazy thought, but maybe, just maybe, we need to attend more to resolving unrepented of sins against one another sometimes as a precondition for being able to be a big, happy family. Just a thought in any event. Those are the eight least popular episodes of the last 100, and I think I can learn as much from them as I can from the most popular episodes. But then I think that is also to say that the consensus may be that those who don't listen to the least popular episodes, and the least popular episodes are maybe at most one-tenth as popular or 10 times as popular, depending on which way you're going. The most popular are 10 times as listened to as the least popular. The least popular are one-tenth as listened to as the most popular. There's a perception that the most popular have something important that is going to be learned. And the least popular, it's expected, uh, I don't need that, right? Or I don't need that as much as I need to spend my time doing something else or listening to something else. And that's fine, right? That's totally fine. I'm not offended by that. It's just the nature of things that it's going to be skewed. But then along what lines and why? The most popular episode of the last 100 had to do with Israel and Hamas and how we can know who the terrorists are are on October 7th. If I were to speculate, and that's about all I can do without polling every one of the people who listened to that podcast episode, I would say the day of a lot of people were seeing news reports and they were wondering what is going on and how do you make sense of it? It's such an assault on the senses and not just what you see in images, not just what you hear in some of the audio, but the sense of justice, the sense of what is sacred? What is right? How could anybody do the things we're hearing reports of having been done in Israel or we're seeing in still photos and in videos people doing and having done to them? It's an assault on the sense of what is right. And then you give it a little bit of time, not much at all. And the people who are apologists for Hamas and for the Palestinians and for the Arabs and for the Muslim world will say, ah, but there's so much context. These are oppressed people. And so we actually should empathize with them. We shouldn't rush to judgment. And what they mean is you shouldn't support Israel. Whether you come to the conclusion that you should support Israel either quickly or slowly, they don't want you to come to that conclusion. That's what they really are getting at. And there I was watching the same videos, seeing the same photos, hearing the same audio, looking at the reports, and I podcasted about it. And maybe that was a comfort, maybe that was helpful to all of the people who listened to that episode that somebody was going to wade in and try to be honest about it and make a value judgment. Who are the terrorists? Not just the people who are causing somebody else to be afraid, but the people who see terror as an appropriate instrument of accomplishing political objectives. The people who are content to, in fact, they're determined to make terrified 
men, women, and children, not just in Israel, but all over the world on the basis of, do you support the nation of Israel continuing to exist, defending itself, being prosperous in the middle of the Muslim world? Do you support that? Well, if so, you should be afraid. You should be very afraid. You should be afraid to say so. You should be afraid to do anything along the lines of supporting Israel. You should be afraid. In fact, you should be terrified because nobody is safe. Nothing is sacred to those who are bent on dissuading you, those who are bent on the destruction of Israel, those who are bent on the eradication of the Jewish people, not just in Israel, but especially in Israel, because that was formerly territory controlled by Muslims. I think it was clear what the episode was about from the title and the timing had people's attentions and people were talking about it and thinking about it and trying to make sense of it, at least wanting to have some peace of mind about it. And so they listened to my episode, a lot of them, or a lot of my audience listened to my episode because they were expecting that or hoping for that, hoping for some peace of mind and not to just be terrified and confused about what's going on. On the opposite end of the spectrum, what we lose when God made man in his image, but God is dead and we killed him. If a lot of people are not stressed out about that, if they don't even know what that is, or they've grown so comfortable with it that it's just background noise at this point, I think that explains why they didn't tune in at the same numbers. How sound political theology tempers our faith in institutions. Again, background noise. It bothers me that we would have either no faith in institutions and then our institutions don't function and we don't function together. We don't cooperate. We don't communicate. We don't work together. We are not peaceable we're not prosperous, we're not safe. That bothers me, but is that too abstract for a lot of people because they don't make the connection and they need that earlier connection made before they're going to see a value in that episode? I think so. <laughs> Whether Fergus Moore, Macerka was father-in-law to King Arthur, the vast majority of humanity does not care. And that's fine. I care. I'm interested. Some people are interested. If most people aren't interested, then okay. I don't expect that episode is ever going to take off, and I don't regret having recorded it because I was working through more than just Thirkes Mor Macerka, whatever small sliver of humanity knows that name, is familiar with that name, is beside the point. They do know King Arthur, but a lot more people being familiar with the name King Arthur, they also don't care about King Arthur. Because that's background noise. That's the wrong side of history. That's the former social imaginary. That's a lot of fairy tales and made-up stories, and it doesn't matter. It bears no relation to our modern life, or so they think, and because they think so, they're not going to listen to that episode. And that's unfortunate, but if I just said, oh, I'm not going to record a podcast episode about that, I'm not going to get into that because most people don't see the value in it, well, then nobody would ever see the value in it. And if they should, if they should see more of a value in that, then the only way to help them to is going to be talking about it before they realize that it is a valuable thing to talk about. Patrick J. Deneen's book, Why Liberalism Failed, is probably only going to be interesting to people who are interested in Patrick J. Deneen, or those who are convinced that liberalism has indeed failed want to know why. But if you don't believe liberalism is a failed ideology, then you're not asking the question, why has it failed? Because you're like, it hasn't failed. Next. Just like you may think King Arthur is on the wrong side of history, and you may think liberalism is on the right side of history forever after, 
moving forward on into the future, it's two sides of the same coin. You're not asking the question of why liberalism has failed necessarily because you don't believe liberalism has failed. You're not asking, you're not even remotely interested who King Arthur's father-in-law was because King Arthur is irrelevant to you. He shouldn't be. He's not, but it's going to take some work. And those episodes are, to some extent, just part of the cost of doing business, as far as I'm concerned. Not a waste of time, even if they weren't listened to by a lot of people. How the mighty have fallen. That title could have been better, perhaps. Sure. But even if it were better in the sense of, say, the next one, Mike Johnson's going to pop some tags, like I'm tying the subject very clearly in the title to a contemporary figure, things that are being discussed right now about people who are alive right now who are consequential to the sort of a national life the United States of America is going to have by extension, the role we're going to play in the world. If people are not particularly interested and they don't particularly care how rich or poor Mike Johnson is because they don't really particularly care about Mike Johnson because they don't particularly care about Congress except to complain about Congress, then maybe some foundation needs to be laid. Maybe I need to pave the way for people to realize that they should care about whether Mike Johnson is still paying on his mortgage monthly and how unusual that is because most of the members of Congress get very rich. They're in there a long time and they engage in insider trading and they always beat the stock market, go figure, because they know what's going to move the needle for investors and stock prices. And they invest ahead of the decisions that they know they're going to make to regulate and to legislate. Game theory, Twilight Imperium, and the pursuit of wealth and wisdom. Some people are interested in game theory, but it's just that. It's theory. It's not practical. It's not concrete if it's theory in their minds. Twilight Imperium, who cares about Twilight Imperium? Some people do. It's a popular game. But I guarantee you, the majority of people who tune into my podcast because they found that I was reviewing a book that they really enjoyed or didn't, as the case may be, or they tuned into the podcast because they're friends and they're curious and they want to take an interest in me, and this is something important to me, or if they're family members and they're just checking in to see if I'm okay or if I'm still talking about King Arthur's father-in-law and I could be doing something more valuable with my life. The vast majority of them are not also simultaneously interested in Twilight Imperium. And so what do they care? Now, the pursuit of wealth and wisdom, that's probably a red flag for the folks who are very conservative theologically because they see any positive mention or even neutral mention of pursuing wealth and wisdom. And they think, ooh, worldly wisdom? Ooh, is this a prosperity theology drift, Garrett? I don't know if I want to listen to that. It's just going to be frustrating. I don't have time for that. Maybe, maybe. Speculative, but then that's about as good as I'm going to be able to do, is to speculate that aside from it being the week before Christmas, thereabouts, this is not obviously valuable to most of the people who listen to this podcast, and that's fine. And a lot of the people who would tune in just to hear about game theory, just to hear about Twilight Imperium, just to hear about the pursuit of wealth and wisdom, maybe they're listening to podcasts by people who are experts in those specific things, and they come across one-off episodes in my list, and they're like, eh, I don't know, maybe, I'll save it for later. 
I'll download it. Maybe I'll get around to it at some point. Ah, what's this, wait, what's this guy doing? He's reading the Bible at the beginning of the episode. That's weird. Okay, never mind. I'm looking for somebody who's talking about Twilight Imperium only or mostly. I'm looking for somebody who's talking about game theory, who's an expert, who's a professor of game theory at some weird university. I'm looking for somebody who's an expert in game theory, and I know that they're an expert because they have a best-selling book on the subject, and they're introduced as an expert on game theory. Fine. Great. Wonderful. I'm not going to wait to talk about or think about Game Theory, Twilight Imperium, and the Pursuit of Wealth and Wisdom until I've checked all those boxes, and I'm not going to just not talk about those subjects together as I'm trying to integrate my worldview just because that episode's not going to get a whole lot of listens. I want it to be as valuable as it possibly can be for everybody and anybody who does listen, and I also want it to be valuable to me, and I think it was valuable to me, and I hope that it was a value to those who listened. Lastly, for some families, getting together for Thanksgiving is a bit more complicated. Again, maybe the title could have used some work. Maybe that was too slapdash. November 23rd, people are busy actually trying to get ready for Thanksgiving. Or by the time this is not a subscriber-only episode, they've moved on. Hey, Thanksgiving is in the rearview mirror. Now we're getting ready for Christmas. Now we're recovering from Thanksgiving. I don't have time to listen to somebody waxing eloquent. But then, you know, I, I thought to myself as I was recording that episode, as I was getting ready to record that episode, and just where it fell with the biblical text as we're going through a chapter at a time each episode, I thought, you know, this is good. This is valuable to talk about because some people see the pictures of their friends or extended family getting together for the holidays and everybody's smiling. Everybody looks nice. Everybody looks like they're having a good time. You've got multi-generational gatherings. You've got siblings and cousins. You've got in-laws sitting down for a meal together. Everybody chips in. Everybody helps out. Then they're playing cards afterwards. They're falling asleep on the couch watching football or whatever. Oh, that's so depressing to me because I don't have that because my extended family is a mess. My relationship with my in-laws is a mess. My relationship with my siblings or my parents or my grandparents is fractured. And maybe I just don't even look forward to the holidays. Maybe I dread the holidays because either we're going to be alone and that's sad, or we're going to be with people who hurt us, who have hurt us. And we expect that they will hurt us again because every time we try and talk about the ways that they've hurt us, they shut it down. You know what? I think if some people listen to that episode and they say, hey, this was really helpful, actually. I appreciate that you didn't just try and guilt trip me into sweeping it all under the rug so I also have great Instagram photos. I really appreciate that you didn't sugarcoat this. In fact, you went to the biblical text. You went to a text which highlights very, very clearly that sometimes maybe you don't accept the dinner invitation. <laughs> Maybe you don't want to be there at that dinner with your siblings. I appreciate that. If it was a help to half a dozen people, then I think I'm content with that. But then going back to the most popular episodes, if I was a help to more people, 10 times as many people, let's say, reviewing books or delving into a conflict between Kevin DeYoung and Doug Wilson, both very popular among Reformed Christians in America today. I like both Kevin DeYoung and Doug Wilson, a lot of things that they've said. And I also have differences with both of them on particular things where I would say, I don't know about that. Mm, yeah. I would phrase that differently. I don't 
think that's actually what the text says. I don't think that's good. I don't think that's true. I think that's just your opinion. And I reserve the right to disagree with it. Was that helpful to 10 times as many people? Maybe so, right? Maybe along very similar lines to extended families sometimes having a very difficult time getting together for the holidays. Yeah, we're supposed to be one big happy family, but then what about when we're not? How are we going to work through our differences? Are we trying to work through our differences? Or do we just lob our grenades and go back to our respective trenches? If how I was voting in Greeley, Colorado was helpful to some, to more people, because they've never really thought through it and they don't know how to even begin to think through these sorts of things. And I gave them something of a blueprint of how to think through these things with regards to being more engaged, more interested in local elections. I'm really glad about that. If my reviewing The Old Man and the Sea and Men in Marriage and War on Sacred Grounds and Life After Television and Just Thinking About the State and The Unsettling of America, if my reviewing those books was thought-provoking for people who've read those books, who've thought about reading those books, who are interested in the subjects of those books, I am thrilled about that because I do think more of us need to be reading because I think that stretches out our attention span. And by the way, that's part of, if not the whole reason, why my podcast episodes are so long because I think we need to stretch our attention spans. And if that means that nobody (laughs) except for me has time to listen to every single episode that I record, produce, and publish, that's okay. That's all right. If you're listening to any of them, And some fruit is being born by you then also taking that longer attention span into some other subjects, and that helps you to stick with it and be more durable and have more perseverance and stand up to trials and tests with more resilience, and that makes you more fruitful, and that helps you to love God better and to love those around you better, more wisely, and also well enough. Great. That's what I'm here for. That's what I'm trying to do. That's what I believe my overarching objective is, however many or however few listens each particular episode may get. So in conclusion, the last 100 episodes from the end of August to the present, if you've been listening that whole time, I want to thank you. I want to express my genuine appreciation. If you've engaged with me and helped me to have material to think through or present to the rest of this audience, thank you, especially JP Chavez and that guy, My wife and J.P. Chavez give me quite a lot of material, and I really, really appreciate it. Both of them are not the kind who would ever feel comfortable. In fact, I've talked with both of them about, hey, I should have you on the podcast sometime. And both of them are like, ah, no, that does not sound like fun. But I think that both of them don't mind when I bring up material that they have shared with me on this podcast. And I really appreciate that. I think that's quite a lot, actually. And I think that's a benefit to you. And I would encourage you, if you encounter my wife or J.P. Chavez or Micah Hirschberger as well, he's another one, my cousin Micah, thank them for helping to make this podcast better each episode with the feedback that they give and the books that they encourage me to read or videos to watch or podcasts, other people's podcasts to listen to, essays and articles and news items to read and respond to. A couple of my sons also have said, hey, have you seen this? Hey, I'm going to send you that. I have a bit of a backlog that I need to get to at some point here of a few episodes of other people's podcasts that have been sent to me by my son, Elihu James, 
I'm really glad for that. Some of my conversations with my oldest son, Josiah David, have been very helpful. At some point, I'm going to have to get back into every now and then doing a special where I bring one of my sons on or my daughter on, and we just talk about whatever they want to talk about for a little bit. I haven't done one of those for quite some time, but they're fun. They're a lot of fun. And even if they're not in an episode, they're very much on my mind as I'm recording. And so I'm thankful to my kids for giving me a lot of food for thought, a lot of encouragement, a lot of smiles, a lot of laughs, some grimaces, let's be honest. Sometimes I shake my head and I'm like, what are you doing? Why did you do that? Why are you saying that? That's nonsense. That's some nonsense right there. That's not correct. (laughs) That's not a good attitude. That's not true. But even that though, right? As I've talked about before, I hold up a mirror and I say, ah, maybe this guy showed you some of that or didn't show you a better way. And maybe I should work on that. And that too is very helpful and it's a blessing. Most of all, I want to thank the good Lord above because the good Lord above has given us his word. If you're in Christ, he's given us his spirit. You should be, if you have those two things, in church. And he's given us the church to be edified in and to edify others in. They will know that we are his disciples because we love one another. The church is where we get to do that. And I don't mean the church building. I mean the community of Christ followers, those who love Jesus is the church. Wherever you meet, wherever you bump into each other, you start gathering in Jesus' name. Two or three is sufficient. There he is in the midst. But I want to thank the good Lord above for providing my family, my friends, our church in this local area and answering the prayers that we take to him. Because he does, going back to 2 Kings chapter 4, he does care about our ability to provide. He does care about our children. He does care about when we grieve, when we suffer. He does care about us having what it is that we need for life and godliness. In fact, he's provided everything that we need for life and godliness in Christ Jesus. And if that's the only thing you take away from however many episodes of this podcast you listen to, well then, I've done what I was supposed to do. But that's all the time I've got for this episode. I've got to run. In our next episode, we will be getting into, obviously, 2 Kings chapter 5. So you won't want to miss that. If you haven't yet, hit subscribe. Share this podcast with somebody that you know and love who also likes to think deeply about things. I'm not going to pretend. I always get it right. But we're going to get closer to being correct and handling the truth rightly if we study to show ourselves approved workmen who need not be ashamed. Sometimes that may mean a little egg on the face, but then that's the beauty of being humble and humbling yourself before the Lord. He gives grace to the humble, but he opposes the proud. So don't be proud. Don't be too proud to put yourself out there and grapple with it and admit when you don't know and ask the hard questions. Even if somebody's going to make fun of you, find people who are not going to make fun of you and laugh at you when you ask the hard questions and really try to think rightly. If they're scoffers, don't hang out with them. Pray for them. Don't hang out with them. Surround yourself with people who love the truth. They rejoice in the truth, and they love God, and they love their neighbor. If I'm helping you to do that, subscribe wherever you like to listen to podcasts. Consider subscribing for 99 cents a month. I'm not going to twist your arm. I'm not going to stop doing this. I do not make any money to speak of off of this podcast, and that's okay. But do consider, if you would, 
subscribing for 99 cents a month. Maybe you're the widow with a jar of oil and that's where you're at. And that's fine. I'm not going to hold that against you. If you're the wealthy woman though, maybe talk with your husband about, let's build a small room on the roof of our house, put a bed and a table and a chair in it for when Garrett's passing through, so to speak, metaphorically, not strictly speaking, I don't need a guest room in your house, but 99 cents a month, I feel like comparatively, it's not much to ask. So consider it. That's all I'm saying. That's all I'm saying. In any event, that's all the time I've got for this episode. Like I said, I got to run. As always, thank you for listening. Until next time, God bless. You've been listening to The Garrett Ashley Mullet Show on Anchor FM. For more content like what you just heard, subscribe to this podcast on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, or Spotify. Also check out thegarrettashleymulletshow.com to subscribe to email alerts when new episodes are published. As always, you can reach me with any comments, questions, complaints, objections, or insights at garrettashleymullet at protonmail.com. Thank you.